when we come to the age of insight that I described last night, where we see the dissolving of everything that has arisen and see that particularly in our thought process, in our mind, and also in our body, that it is constantly falling apart, no matter what we do, and around us, wherever we look. Then a next step arises, which is called disenchantment. Now, that's not getting disgusted or um, disliking anything. It's just losing the enchantment with that which we so far have thought is going to give us the kind of happiness that we want. The enchantment with our own mind and body. The enchantment with the things that are available in the world, there's no end to them. <clears throat> there's a, what is called papancha in the world, proliferation. It's everywhere. We can buy so many things. We can do so many things. We can learn so many things. We can go to so many different uh, courses and um interesting uh, exhibitions and uh, it has no end to it. The books that are available in one library, never mind in all the libraries, in just one library, can never be read in one lifetime. So what to say about the books that are available in all libraries? The proliferation is so immense that without true insight, that always holds out a promise. If I just do that, I'll be all right. And then I just do that, and I'm still not all right, so that I haven't done the right thing, I must do another thing. And since there's absolutely no end to it, we can be busy life after life after life. Having attained one thing, sailed around the world or climbed the Himalaya mountains or uh, backpacked through India or got a degree or it doesn't matter what it is, we do the next one and still haven't got what we were looking for because we weren't actually looking for the highest mountain <clears throat> nor were we looking for going around the world in a sailboat nor were we looking for the degree. What we were actually looking for was happiness. And we thought it was going to be attained that way. So at that time, when we see quite clearly, having put our attention on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and querulousness, not only in ourselves, but in daily life, when we see quite clearly that everything contains those three characteristics, then we become disenchanted. The enchantment just wanes. All the promises that the world was holding out, holding out for us, 
no longer seem to have any reality to them. It doesn't mean that we can't do any of those things. We can still sail around the world if that's exactly what we want to do. We can still read books. We can still do all the things that we had in mind. But we will never again expect them to give us happiness and peace. That expectation is once and for all lost. And because we don't expect them to give us happiness and peace anymore, many of the things we thought we would have to do, like to do, must do, will fall away. There will be a much tighter understanding of what is important. This disenchantment carries into all aspects of life. And it has for particularly a great impact on one's attitude towards one's body. Naturally, the body is still going to get food. It will get medicine when it needs it. It will get a rest at night. But it's no longer looked upon as any possibility to give us happiness, give us peacefulness, or to have that vital importance that most people think it has. It just is. And we can see quite clearly that if we look after it properly, it gives us less trouble. But some trouble is always there. Everybody knows it. And we have lost the hope and the expectation to do that thing which will avoid all those troubles forever. Because we are no longer enchanted with the idea that this can be the answer. It cannot be the answer. We've seen that quite clearly. If we use our native intelligence, our common sense, and let go of, just momentarily, of all craving, and just look at the reality of what there is, it becomes utterly clear. It's impossible not to see it. However, it's always overshadowed by what we want and would like to have. And it's also overshadowed by busyness. Our mind is busy. And uh, we often think it ought to be that busy. But in reality, it really isn't doing anything. It's just busy. So with that, we don't see this in clarity, that which is really obvious. But when we see it through our meditative practice, we can't deny it. Having got as far as seeing the danger, the disenchantment is the next 
progressive step. There's nothing else that can be done. The difficulty lies to get past the moment when we see the dissolution and like to turn back. This is a moment when many people like to turn back. It's a moment when many monks and nuns disrobe because it's just too much to take if there's nothing else happening in their lives. It's very often the moment when people who have been meditating quite um, regularly stop and they don't even know themselves why. Often they do. Often they know that it's a, a moment where they just feel um, too fearful. But often they don't even know why. But having got past that moment, having seen the danger, having got the urgency to practice, then the disenchantment arises as a natural progression. And with that disenchantment comes the desire to be delivered out of this unsatisfactory state of affairs. Because we have no longer the belief nor the hope that the state of affairs in which we find ourselves, namely this realm, which is beset with so much difficulty, that that can ever really give us what we are yearning for. This is a very decisive step. Having got this far, this is a very decisive step because from that comes the next step which brings the total change. The next step is called dispassion. In Pali, that's viraga. Uh, raga is more than just passion. Uh, raga is the root word for rage, but not um, angry rage, but that kind of rage of raging around, really being strongly uh, in with a strong energy of wanting to have the um, um, sensual pleasures. So not the rage of anger, but the rage of strong, very strong passions. Now that V, the I, is the non. So we could say it's a, the literal translation would be non-rage, but it, that doesn't make sense. So we, we call it dispassion, which is quite a good translation because passion is also a strong word. And uh, it means that when that arises from the disenchantment, from having seen that there's nothing there that can really give one what one is looking for, one can have momentary pleasures, one can have moments of feeling at ease, but the totality of happiness and peace just doesn't exist out there. So with that dispassion arises the real equanimity. That is the, the stage of in insight where equanimity becomes full-blown. It's no longer a practice. Until then, we practice equanimity, naturally. One has to. One can't always fly in a rage when something goes wrong, and one cannot always um, 
look, run after everything that one thinks is nice. But with we practice equanimity on this path, but it only arises at this moment fully blown because the passion for anything has been now eliminated. That doesn't mean that the person becomes a vegetable. It doesn't mean that that person has no inner joy. On the contrary, it's just the opposite. Because there is no craving at that moment, at that stage, um, and because there's no um, regret about not getting what one wants or regret about getting what one doesn't want, the inner joy is unimpaired. It's an inner life which is even and smooth. And um, because the inner life is even and smooth, the mind is clear. So with that inner joy and mental clarity, which is unimpaired by any passions, the um, even having got this far, the um, um, person who gets this far has a kind of idea that maybe they're already enlightened. It's um, a dangerous moment where one needs a teacher to show one that one really isn't enlightened yet. But a person who's very equanimous really doesn't get angry and doesn't get upset and uh, doesn't want anything can easily have that mistaken view about themselves because everybody else is getting angry and everybody else wants something. So it appears as if there was really an enlightenment uh, had taken place, but that's not so. And uh, it's very important at that time to uh, question someone who has gone ahead. The Buddha said once, when Ananda, his um, his attendant uh, for 25 years, and also his cousin, said to him, Sir, a good friend is half of the spiritual life. The Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda. A good friend is the whole of the spiritual life. And a good friend in Pali is a Kalyanamitta. And that actually means someone who is um, um, helping one on the spiritual path, such as teachers, uh, who have presumably gone one step further. So that these dangers that are on the path, where one gets a wrong view of oneself, or where one turns away from what doing it, are um, eliminated that one is helped along this way. There's a, a story of an old monk who was living in a cave and had been living there for more than 30 years. And uh, he had a young monk as a disciple. And uh, the old monk was under the impression that he was enlightened because living in that cave, he hadn't got angry he hadn't wanted anything for years on end. So, of course, this was his idea. So, after this young monk had been there 
um, with them for five years, the uh, old the old teacher said, now you can go to some other teachers and get some more teaching from others and find out what it's like. This is a traditional way of staying five years with one teacher and then going around and seeing what else is available. So after the young monk had been out for two years, he became enlightened. So immediately he used his clairvoyance, which has arisen at that time, to see how his old teacher was doing. And he saw quite clearly that the old teacher was not enlightened. So he went back to him immediately and uh, went back to the cave. An old teacher was very happy to see him and they discussed uh, all the amenities. And uh, then the uh, young monk said to the old teacher, Sir, can you make a vision arise? And uh, the old monk said, Yes, of course I can do that. Uh, what would you like to see? And uh, the young one said, I would like to see a huge wild elephant standing right here in the cave. Old monk said, certainly. And there was a huge uh, wild elephant standing in the cave. The young monk said, oh, that's wonderful. Can you also make the vision do something? And he said, certainly. What would you like him to do? And the young one said, well, make him attack you. And the minute, of course, the young one said that, the old one knew he wasn't enlightened because he became fearful. And so he asked the young one to uh, help him become enlightened. So we have that, uh, if we get this to the point of equanimity and aren't very bothered with anything, we really need some assistance at that time. And... uh, and also, at sometimes uh, people have this idea about themselves when they um, meditate a lot and uh, do not uh, have no confrontations with people that may be a little difficult, but just stay in their own circle, and uh, they that kind of thing also happens. So one has to really. Um, get someone to help one there. So with this, um, when the dispassion arises, there's equanimity. And what one sees quite clearly at the time is that the body, particularly body and mind, consists of compound, compounded things. They're, they belong, there's a, the whole thing arises because they are bits and pieces. It's a compound. It's not a whole. And everything that we know, we can inquire into anything that we know. And we will see it's made up of compounded things. Nothing is just one. It all consists of bits. And we also know, without even checking it out, that everything has a cause for being there. Whether it's a material thing like this, it consists of bits and pieces, and it's been made, and so is this bits and pieces and has been made, and the same goes for the mind. And we know that all things that are made up of bits and pieces have impediments. We can tell quite clearly in the body, one time this is wrong and another time that is wrong, and there's uh, this piece isn't working so well and another piece isn't working so well, this is hurting, that's hurting, and so on. And in the mind, it's just the same. 
Sometimes we've got troubles with our emotions, and sometimes we've got trouble with our sense contacts, and sometimes we have trouble with our thinking, we think unhappy thoughts. So there's always something happening that isn't quite satisfactory. We can see that nothing that has been made up of different aspects is totally satisfying. And because of that, we have no more passion for any of those things. They just can't satisfy. And they don't only have the um, aspect of not being um, always something wrong with them. They also have to be renewed, something they have to be looked after. This body has to constantly be looked after and renewed. If we didn't eat for a while, we'd be, maybe if we didn't eat for a while, we'd actually die if we if we carried this on long enough. But uh, washing and uh, snipping off unnecessary ends from nails and hair and all that sort of thing, it's got to be constantly looked after because it's always deteriorating. Everything we own deteriorates and we have to renew it. But it also has a signifying quality because all this is happening with these compounds. It signifies something to us. It tells us something. So we have a constant mind reaction to all these things. The mind is always either um, liking or disliking, judging. The mind has always something to do with what is happening. And that too isn't peaceful and satisfying. We have seen now through the meditative practice, assuming one has gone through the meditative absorptions, that the mind can be quite happy and peaceful. It doesn't have to constantly have a reaction to the signifying aspects of whatever arises. And when we see that that too is unsatisfactory, there is no wishing anymore for mind and body. They just aren't satisfactory. And at that time, one of these three characteristics stands out more than the others. Now, a person who has a lot of faith <clears throat> is usually very much um, interested in impermanence. That stands out. A person who has a lot of concentration, dukkha will stand out. And a person with an analytical mind, non-self will stand out. The, one of the three will be a primary aspect of investigation and not only investigation because when the dispassion has arisen that investigation has already been finished it will stand out as the most prominent factor of all existence if we have impermanence standing out as the most prominent factor of all existence we will see that in reality all what we thought was significant isn't because it's falling apart. If uh, dukkha stands out as the most prominent factor of existence, we realize that wishing for anything cannot be satisfying because it will only fall apart also. And if we have um, non-self as the most uh, prominent factor, then we realize that within all this impermanence, and unsatisfactoriness. There is nothing that is uh, solid. So these are three different 
are factors which all come to the same conclusion. It's just that whatever the person has as their most, um, um, as their strongest characteristic, that factor will be more prominent in their mind. When one goes through the door of liberation through impermanence, it's called the signless liberation. When one goes through the door of liberation by seeing dukkha, it's called the wishless liberation. And if one goes through the door of liberation through non-self, it's called the voidness liberation. And these are just words and terms which can be experienced if we see one of these characteristics more strongly than the other. But they all, as you can see, are totally interwoven. Having seen this unsatisfactoriness of all that is put together in bits and pieces, which naturally has the most significant aspect in body and mind, then the mind in meditation wants to find that which is uncompounded. It wants to find that which really has the aspect of absolute peace. It has now got far enough in its understanding and in its letting go to want the absolute. And seeing that it doesn't know, of course, what the absolute is like, it can only infer from that what it knows and that those things that it knows are not satisfying. So it, lo- it compound is not satisfying, so it looks for uncompounded. Conditions are not satisfying, so it looks for unconditioned. It wants to become a, uh, a, in, get in touch with that which has absolutely no causes and conditions, but is the underlying factor of all that ever arose. The mind at that time has probably an understanding, and this differs on how strong the insight is. It's impossible to say that everyone at that time has the same um, understanding. It may have to work, one may have to work longer on this, this passion. But the mind at that time probably knows that what it's looking for is the, the matrix of existence. It wants to become, uh, wants to let go of all the things that it has so far liked and uh, wanted, and particularly that mind and body which is not satisfying, and not be burdened by those things anymore, but wants to come to the ground of being, to that where no causes and conditions exist, only craving arises and gets again into conditions. So the ground of being, the matrix of existence, whatever name one wants to give it, one wants to have absolute peace. And there's a simile given how this is accomplished to get to absolute peace. And that may be helpful to give this a sort of a more solid um, reality that one can actually do it. There's no question that one can actually do it. But one has to have certain um, prerequisites in one's life that one can actually want to do that.
The simile that is given is that one is standing on this side of a river and one wants to get across onto the other side. And so with the moon, there's a rope hanging from a branch. Now, the branch is a branch of selfhood and the rope is a rope of materiality. Material things, body. And with the momentum of practice behind one, one is able to grab a hold of this rope and swing across this river and lean and incline towards the other uh, bank and leaning and inclining towards the other bank lets go of the rope of materiality tied on to the branch of selfhood and falls down on the other side. At first, of course, having had no practice of doing that, one wobbles. One doesn't stand quite straight. However, in the next moment, one can straighten oneself out. Now, with that simile, it is quite clear that in order to get to that which is total peace, one has to be willing and able to let go of all ideas of self. One has to let go of all the I want peace, it's my peace, um, I'm going to have it, I'm gonna, and I'm going to keep it. All that has to go. One has to be totally uh, convinced in one's mind that the only way to have peace is to be able to completely let go and drown anything that has any connotation of selfhood, of this person. This person is no longer an issue. At that time, it is dropped. Otherwise, we can't get across to the other side where this, where that what we had in mind really exists. As long as there's any, anything left of selfhood, we can't let go. And so we might be even hanging on that rope but we'll have to swing back. We can't let go and jump onto the other side. Now that letting go is an um, actual deliberate action, just like the simile depicts. It is not something that happens of its own. One has to be totally convinced that being here is not what one is after. One has to be totally convinced that being here has only one reason, namely to find out how not to be here and not to have any other reason in mind. Now, naturally, this is only possible if this whole pathway of insight has been gone. Some people can do it fast. They get one insight after another and it becomes quite clear. Some people take it slow. Some people turn back. Even if one turns back in the middle somewhere, 
the insights which one has already gained, one can't lose. They stay with one. They are there and they will again and again raise their head and urge one to do something about them. One can turn back again and again too. But um, the uh, if once something has been reached, some insight, that does not disappear like the calm. Calm disappears. If one doesn't practice, it disappears. But insight doesn't. So having been able to let go of this idea that I want to be, then it's possible to get over to this other side where it is uh, returning to the underlying absolute totality without any individuality. So one has to be one has to be resigned to the fact that in order to gain complete peace one has to let go of that what the one who wants to gain peace. The one who wants to gain peace can't get it. However, having done it afterwards, person realizes that that, having lost this feeling inside at that time of this is me, has brought about an inner change where the person who originally wanted the peace, although that one is no longer there, the peace has actually been achieved. But that one doesn't know that beforehand. So one has to take that on trust. Or one has to have enough insight to infer from one's past experiences through the meditative path that this must be what is happening. This is called path and fruit. The path moment is when one touches the other bank for the first time and wobbles about trying to straighten up. And the fruit moment is the one immediately after. And uh, the past moment is one mind moment, and the fruit moment can be two or three. And what happens at the past moment is it's the experience. And the fruit moment is the understanding. And it comes immediately after. One gains the fruit of one's, of one's uh, spiritual path at that time. And uh, because one has now a clear mind and has also practiced sufficiently to know what one is doing, the um, the understanding arises automatically, what one has done. One can also use a simile rather than jumping across and letting go, which is a good analogy and is from the Visuddhimagga. One can use an analogy of um, letting oneself drown in the underlying matrix of all that exists. 
this is maybe a stronger way of thinking of letting go of oneself. And although one doesn't know what all this is like, the experience itself is a feeling and the fruit moment is the understanding. Again, we have heart and mind, feeling and knowing. We have knowledge and vision. We always have to use both. We are equipped with both and that's why both have to be used. The very first time this happens, it is a very major uh, impact on one's life, but it is a very minor factor, actually, of enlightenment. Because at that time, which technically called stream entry, and the person who does it is called a stream enterer, at that time, the first three fetters are lost. And none of them touch greed and hate yet. Greed and hate are not even mentioned. The first three fetters which are lost is the wrong view of self, the belief in rites and rituals, and skeptical doubt. Now, that wrong view of self is lost because one has had the experience that there really isn't one. But it's still a view. And it's a view that people also have when they have uh, studied enough or um, heard enough. They get that view that there really isn't a self, but they can't feel it. And if we can't feel it, we're going to make all the same mistakes that we've always done before. However, the stream enterer, while he doesn't have that wrong view anymore, can also resurrect the feeling of the past moment. And being able to resurrect that feeling of the past moment also can then have that feeling of there's nobody there. And being able to resurrect that is an imperative, um, uh, progressive um, measure to resurrect that feeling as often as possible so that it becomes more and more embedded as one's second nature. The first nature which we have, we all know that. We know me is getting out of bed in the morning, me is supposed to sit and meditate, me doesn't want to, and all the rest of it. But then, when this has happened, we resurrect that um, experience as often as possible to get into the feel of it again and again. The resurrection of that experience is the necessary, necessary practice in order to come to the second path mode. Now, this wrong view of self, which we hold, this is me, has been eliminated once and for all in an intellectual way. So, we, the person who has done this, has less clinging, but still plenty of it. And uh, rites and rituals are not necessarily um, eliminated, but the belief in them is. 
Now, the belief that rites and rituals can bring one to absolute peace, that no longer exists, because one has seen for oneself that it wasn't a rite or a ritual that did it, but it was strictly through insight and through the capacity of letting oneself actually go, letting my, me go. Rites and rituals will probably, by a person like that, will probably become less. It won't be such an important aspect. And rites and rituals are very much connected with religion. They are also very much connected with all the differences in the um, uh, different uh, pathways. And everybody has their own and make a, can use them but a person who has gained that particular path and fruit will not uh, hang on to them. If they're necessary to be performed, they'll be performed. If not, it doesn't matter. These rites and rituals are not only religious. We also have rites and rituals in our way of dealing with our daily lives. We have rites and rituals how we deal with other people, who they are, we have that also with um, the way we um, approach certain necessary duties and responsibilities and often get quite rigid about it. And if other, people's don't, other people don't uh, follow what we're doing, don't do it the same way, we think they must be wrong. Well, a person who has seen that all this is totally unimportant, has no significance, uh, will be less likely to argue and will be less likely to try and be right. Because to be right or to be wrong are strictly viewpoints and they're all based on the ego illusion. The Buddha gave a discourse called the Brahmajala Sutta in which he enumerated 62 views which are sort of like headings for all the views which we can have, and every one of them is wrong, because they are all based on our ego illusion. They are discolored. And because of that, person who has seen that all this doesn't have a reality to them, all these views, viewpoints, opinions, arguments, how I'm doing it, how you're doing it, and... Uh, how one should be approached by other people, how we approach other people, how we approach our business uh, uh, connections, all this uh, at that time is seen as strictly illusion. So such a person, while not completely without hate or greed by any means, it hasn't even been touched yet, but viewpoint has been touched very strongly. Viewpoint of self connects one to viewpoint about everything else. And viewpoint, having been touched so strongly at that time, is no longer the main um, mainstay of one's uh, uh, of one's actions. The rigidity is completely eliminated at that time, because rigidity is always based on viewpoint. How one should do it, one way only, or my way only, but that's even preferable, isn't it? My way only. So that is one of the advantages. The, um, the skeptical doubt is totally eliminated. That will never arise again. 
because having had that experience, it's impossible to doubt the Buddha's words, it's impossible to doubt the enlightenment experience, it's impossible to doubt that oneself can do it because one has just done it, it's uh, impossible to doubt that the spiritual path is the only thing that's worth doing, there's no doubt left, complete confidence. And uh, that will never, never uh, arise again. It is also said that such a person, this is um, traditional, uh, can never take anyone else except the Buddha as the teacher, because having used the Buddha's instructions to get there, that is then the teacher that one uh, accepts. Uh, such a person can never be reborn uh, below the human realm and has at the maximum seven rebirths to finish the job. However, <laughs> it can all be done in this lifetime. The uh, having, having got to the first entry there, the others are, especially the next two, it's always the fourth one, it's the most difficult one, uh, are not so uh, difficult anymore. This uh, stream entry it can be called the kindergarten of enlightenment. Uh, a person who has gained that has a much clearer view of everything. Viewpoint is very much purified. But uh, the other aspects of oneself are not purified. They're called Chetuvimuti and Panyavimuti. And again, we have heart and mind. Panya is a liberation through wisdom. Chetu the liberation through the heart. And they depict quite clearly the two different ways of getting at it. Chetavimuti is when the heart is purified along the path through the four supreme emotions. Loving kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity. And when the meditative absorptions are being practiced. That's a purification through the heart. Now, obviously, in order to come to the moment of letting go, the purified heart will also have to have the wisdom. So they both meet at the apex, but they are the two different pathways. Whereas the Panyavimuti is a path through insight. And as the mind becomes clearer and clearer, obviously it will also have to have the purification of the heart. And the moment of of liberation is a moment of jhana, a moment of meditative absorption. No matter whether we are sitting on a pillow or standing at a corner, it doesn't matter. Wherever it happens, it is a moment of jhana. So even there we could see as I have already mentioned several times, the great advantage if we at least have the ability for first the first two, three uh, meditative absorptions, because in order to make that transition from a worldling to a noble one, we have to have a jhana moment, an absorption moment. Through regular practice, that also can come if one has not practiced the absorptions at all, because the regular practice eventually will calm the mind down somehow or other. 
if one is regular about it. It is a harder way to do it. It's more difficult and it's less enjoyable. But it gets to the same point. Obviously, the person who gets liberated through panya, through wisdom, must at that time, at the apex, have the purification of the heart also. Because the wisdom will tell that person that with a heart that is hateful um, and not compassionate, there is no possibility of peacefulness. So getting to the point of letting go, both meet. It is the two different approaches. I will quickly now just delineate in order to uh, give it the sort of completeness the next uh, two or three steps although they are at this point rather theoretical uh, it doesn't matter <laughs> a bit of theory doesn't hurt particularly if the theory should uh, uh, encourage people to practice. Now, with that, having had that first path moment, the person is a changed person, but naturally it is uh, not uh, visible or discernible to other people. That's why we have this saying, only a Buddha knows a Buddha. We only know what we have already experienced within. That we know. What else can we know? It just doesn't, isn't within our awareness. The only thing we can infer is, ah, it's a bit different. But that's about it. But whether that different is good or bad, we don't even know that. It's just different. So, all viewpoints. Now, resurrecting the, um, the moment when it happened that one was able to let go of self and drown in the absolute without any residue of me with the feeling that we can experience again and again if we put our mind on it. And because of that, because I've experienced it again and again, we can also put our mind in the meditative practice on again attaining that moment where no conditions and no causes exist. Where we have, that having done it once before, we need to do that again. And if the mind is capable of doing it again, it may be able to gain the second path moment. And the second path moment makes one a once-returner. That means one has to come back once more to finish it. At that time, nothing more happens than that greed and hate are diminished. Hate becomes irritation. And greed becomes preference for all time at that time. It never changes again in, one, in that person. Hate is nev never any more than irritation at that time, and greed is never any more than preference. But it's still there. And uh, 
what one prefers, one goes after. And if one is irritated, one doesn't want to be around. So it is still only the second, that is the second path of enlightenment. Can you imagine what everybody is like that hasn't had a path of enlightenment? <laughs> so if we can have an inference of that, we are no longer surprised at what goes on in the world and particularly will not be surprised what goes on within ourselves and particularly will not blame ourselves because this is the way it is. It's a second path, the second path moment that brings that result. In the first path moment that isn't even touched yet, only the viewpoints are touched. So before anything of that sort happens, that's why the world looks the way it does. That's why the newspapers report the way they do. What we see in Time and Newsweek, well, that's all coming out of that, out of greed and hate. And having that quite clearly in the mind will help one to practice diligently so that one doesn't have to live in a realm and in a being and an existence where this is the norm. Greed and hate are the norm. Naturally, there are moments of non-greed and non-hate. But the norm is there. And because people have that idea, they don't want to live in that kind of a realm. That's why the idea of paradise arose, or heaven. Wouldn't it be nice to live there? And uh, the Buddha did not um, deny that such states are available, but they're also impermanent. Now, some people will settle for that. Is that all right? Are good. And now, in the Buddhist terminology, these are called the Deva realms. They're not called heaven or, or paradise. They're called the Deva realms. And there are 26 of those. One more exalted than the next. The higher they go, they're more exalted. And uh, naturally, now even the person who is a once-returner, has a second path, has definitely that as um, a desire, as a preference. And even the next stage, the non-returner, still has that. Okay, this realm's no good. We've seen that. It's all full of dukkha and impermanence, don't like it so much, go somewhere else. Now, with the, um, when that greed and hate has been reduced to preference and irritation, obviously such a person has a much easier life. There's no question about it. And having had two experiences, now two very strong experiences of nobody there, that's why it's called emptiness because it's empty of self. There's nobody sitting inside as a director. The director has disappeared. He never was there. It was an idea. And the idea of this director is no longer there. And having that two experiences of that, of course, um, helps to remember this more often, to resurrect that feeling more often. And it is much, much easier at that time to get back to that feeling. And wandering through life, 
with that feeling within when one puts one's mind on it. The Buddha compared that with when a man has hand and hands and feet cut off. He will know about that when he puts his mind on it. It's whatever we put our mind on, that's what we know. So when self has been cut off, we know about it when we put our mind on it. And when we look inside, we don't find that uh, person that is supposedly in charge. But when we don't look, then that is again not a, uh, a factor of awareness. Now, obviously, a person who has gone this far is anxious to get come to an end of all this because there's nothing to hold them, to hold that person back except the idea it must be nice in the deva realm and particularly the highest deva realms. And the next step, the non-returner, who repeats the whole process again. It's just a repetition of the process. Each stage can only be experienced once. So it's a repetition of the same process. Then the non-returner is finally the one who gets rid of hate and greed. Now that's an enormous uh, uh, accomplishment. Even irritation and preference has been left behind. But there are still five impediments in that person. Quite a, quite a business, isn't it, to get to the end of this? Um, <laughs> now, this person has a desire for living either in the fine material or non-material realms. Now, the fine material realms, are, of course, um, have as their vehicle the fine material absorption. And the non-material realms has a, have as their vehicle the non-material absorptions. That's obvious. Um, the non-material realms are the four highest realms of existence. They're called the Brahma realms, the God realms. And they are of such long duration that those beings think they are permanent. Uh, they have such clarity and purity that they think that they are omniscient and, uh, in other words, in charge. And uh, this is how the Buddha explained where the God idea comes from. So for four highest realms. And that person, the non-returner, really wants to go there. And will, will go there. Because a non-returner doesn't come back to the human realm, but will finish this in the Brahma realms. But they are such enormously long duration that there's no way to say it in our language how long it is that the Buddha said, even that is not very useful because he may stick around there for such a long time, it may be like forever almost. And that's why one thinks, or this has been sort of embedded in our idea system, that uh, heaven is forever. We said it isn't forever, but it appears to be very, it appears to be because it's so long. And he also has a desire possibly to go to the fine material realms if he hasn't done the non-material absorptions which are the other um, uh, 32 minus 9, 23, <laughs> 23 um, realms of the Deva, of the Deva world. Um, there are five realms up to the human realm. Now we are number five from the bottom. So 
what can one expect? Uh? <laughs> but now you mustn't think that one has to go through all these others like through a sort of a school system to get to the top then in order to get to become an, uh, enlightened. Nothing of the kind. The Buddha said this realm is the best one for enlightenment because we have enough dukkha to get us onto the pillow and we have enough sukha, pleasure, not to become totally depressed by the dukkha. This is the best one to practice. The devas are supposedly have so much sukha, so much pleasure, they have what's called a wish-fulfilling gem. They can ask for anything and have it immediately that they forget to practice. Now, mind you, not all of them. There are always some around. But uh, the, apparently the majority of them forget to practice. <laughs> so this is not a good realm to become enlightened in. Now, the non-returner has those two wishes. Then he also has still conceit, Manu, which doesn't mean that that person is conceited, but it means that the person still conceives of a me, even though that me is a totally changed idea from the one an ordinary person has. Um, the ordinary person, well, you know all about that, what that me is like. I don't have to explain it. I mean, we know what that me sound, it feels like. But the uh, non-returner, as it said, like the me clings to that person like the uh, uh, aroma clings to a flower, like the scent of a flower clings to the flower. So it is a very subtle uh, still feeling of there is something within, whatever that something may be, and that something really would like to go into these higher realms. So that is still there. Restlessness is still there because the non-returner wants to go somewhere. He hasn't arrived yet. He wants to go, well, apparently to the Deva realms or Brahma realms. This is a very strong um, impediment. And it's, uh, it's, um, can be compared, it's uh, quite uh, uh, the same as this idea of heaven or paradise. Very, uh, um, uh, people who have a great deal of faith in other religions think that this is where they're going to go if they act nicely and all the rest of it. And this is a very strong, uh, not just in Christianity, there are other religions that believe the same thing give it different names, but uh, I don't know those other names too well. Just paradise and heaven. So this is very strong for the non-returner also. And uh, he still has ignorance, which means ignoring the absolute. Although he has had three experiences of the absolute, he's still igno ignoring the last bit of it. Now those five are only surmounted by the Arahant. And uh, you can see that the first three are not all that difficult. But the last one, that's a real, a real um, accomplishment to become enlightened, fully enlightened. What most of the meditation teachers in the forest, forest um, hermitages in the Buddhist countries say, and my teacher does too, that if one doesn't become a stream enter in this life, one had, has wasted a good human life. Hmm? 
if one doesn't become a stream enter in this life, one has wasted a good human life. And uh, the other steps follow automatically. They take, of course, the uh, necessary effort, but that effort can no longer be stopped. It's almost like an automatic effort then. Uh, it may take time, as can take seven lifetimes, but uh, it may take no time at all. But if one hasn't done that, uh, come to the stream entry, one hasn't used one's potential. Now, the potential that we have is being a human being. That's a great potential. Another one we have is that we live in an affluent society. We have to don't have to go out in the rice fields from morning to night in the rain and sun trying to just get enough rice to eat. We just have to go to the supermarket. This is one of the great advantages. If you ever go to any of the third world countries, you will see how the majority of the population has to spend their time, their energy, their strength, and their thoughts on just getting enough to eat. I think here we often spend time and energy on the thought how not to eat quite so much. But this is considered to be a great blessing not to have to worry about one's food. So we, have a, we are a human being. We don't have to worry about the food. We have our limbs in order. We have our senses in order. That too is a great blessing. Again, in the West, we put those that those limbs and senses are not in order behind walls in very um, antiseptic environments where we don't see them. In Asia, we see them, and we can see quite clearly how fortunate we are. Now, we have that, and we have the greatest blessing of all. We have the opportunity to hear the true Dhamma. That is the greatest blessing of all. That even is rare in the world. Now, these are the opportunities which we have. And to use that as one's base for gratitude and joy makes it possible to practice diligently. And then if we use those blessings, we will gain this particular uh, benefit, which has this terminology uh, of stream entry, which means that we have entered the stream to Nibbana and we can no longer be deterred. We're in the stream. We have entered the path. Having entered that path, that stream, there's no way we can get out again. That's our way. We need to have the necessary insight to see that this is what we want to do. It takes a fair bit of um, practice even to come to that insight. Because one can meditate and meditate and meditate, and then what? One can gain a little bit of peacefulness at times. One can have an idea, which is also very nice, that one is spiritual. 
That's also nice to have that idea, but it does not prevent one from greed and hate. And it does not eliminate the unhappiness in the mind. The unhappiness in the mind is eliminated through the inside. And the inside parts, which I have um, rather briefly, but still in detail, uh, try to set out. Naturally, each step takes a while. So don't um, think now, having heard that within the space of one week, that's all it takes. It takes time. It takes time and effort. But um, Ramana Maharshi, whom I mentioned once before, said, happiness and peace are not our birthright. Those who have attained it, have attained it through great effort. Effort is something that we always make in our lives for something, even getting up, getting everything done. All these things are effort. We have to make effort. So we need to sort of find out in ourselves where we should put our greatest effort. Which way? What is most important for us? What really has priority? And if we have that as our direction, what has our greatest priority? We can't fail. Because what else could we possibly want except to be happy and be peaceful? Everything else pales in comparison. So when that is um, part of our understanding, then the spiritual path becomes our joy and our privilege and not a chore and uh, a misery. When it is a joy and a privilege, then we have the right view of it. So, you can ask some questions now. Just a second, I've got to drink some water. <laughs> hmm? And have you made any any conclusions about your dream, like people usually do? 
No. I hope not. Hmm? Yes. Realm, yes. That's right. I'm equally unclear. What? <laughs> Come again. Tell me again. Yes, of course. Of course. You can only practice while you're here. Yeah, well, you've got to come back and practice again. From where? If you're a non-returner, you don't return here. went past you, huh? <laughs> oh, is that what she's asking? Okay, thank you. <laughs> no, you don't have a human body in the Deva room. You've got a Deva body. Okay? All right. How do you know whether it's in balance? Well, if you gain a lot of insight, you can become quite excited about it and you're not in balance. And if you gain a lot of calm and no insight, you can become quite um, uh, drowsy from your calm and don't know anything. But you've got to practice a little longer to become aware of that. I had a fellow in a course once several years ago. It was a very interesting experience for me. He had been practicing TM for 12 years. And that's really geared towards calm. And uh, he got very, very angry at me for ringing this bell. And he said, I ring this bell every time uh, when he's just having such a wonderful time. And so <laughs> I thought, gee, what is this now? And I had sort of looked, and the next time I looked at him, and he looked like he was fast asleep. And uh, so then I asked him, and I said, well, after you come out of your meditation, uh, do you feel tired? He said, of course, I want to go down and sleep. And I said, but that's not, you know, calm. That's being in a sort of trance. He was furious at me. He said, I know that this is a, this is a way to do it, and he walked out. So he had far too much calm, far too much. He wanted to go and lie down and sleep after he had finished with his meditation, and he was angry when I rang the bell, and I mean, if you get angry when somebody rings a bell, obviously you haven't had that much insight, have you? <laughs> but he wouldn't even listen. <laughs> well, that was the only one time that this happened. But that that's a person with too much calm. Okay. 
Yes. Uh, yeah, this little planet wipes itself out. Well, I don't know. There are other planets. I really don't know about that. I can't say. But all these realms that we, that, uh, there are 31 realms, okay? And, uh, the human realms of fifth from the bottom. Each realm is a state of consciousness, okay? So, in that state of consciousness, actually, one can experience that right here. All 31 of them. I mean, we can experience um, a God consciousness if we have absolute loving kindness and compassion. Absolute. That's the consciousness which takes us to the Brahma realm. If we have the non-material absorptions, we can ex- we experience that because it's so expansive, it's infinite. The Brahma realm have the experience of infinity. If we behave like animals, we experience that. Right? We can experience hell realms. There are innumerable hell realms that uh, we know about, like concentration camps and labor camps and things like that. So these are states of consciousness. And uh, the consciousness provides the body. The kind of consciousness we have provides the kind of body we have. If we want to be a human being, that's when we get a human body. It's our craving, right? Okay, so if we have behaved like animals, that's, probably what we are after. And uh, if the consciousness is very pure and very fine, then that will also provide this very pure and fine um, spherical body, which is not a not like this, but there's still a body in the Deva realms. Now in the Brahma realms, there's only mind. So these are states of consciousness, and a state of consciousness takes one to the realm where one should be. Obviously, can't be anything else. And uh, whether there's another place where this state of consciousness of a human being can live, one would assume so, yes. One would assume that this is possible. It may have to have a little different body. And I mean, all you have to do is read science fiction and you can find out all the different kind of bodies that are possible. People have wonderful ideas about that, you know. So these states of consciousness are in existence in the universe and uh, states of consciousness are only finished when the state of consciousness is let go of to return to and be that which is the absolute underlying reality and no personal thing in it anymore so yes one uh, i would say yes but the buddha didn't say that in his time they didn't have uh, the, the ability to wipe out this whole planet. He didn't say that, but I would say yes. Personal opinion. Yes? So, one thing that I've always been thinking on the statement that came up is who becomes, who goes to the world, who goes to the animal world? Consciousness. Nobody here. Yes, your what consciousness. The karma. The connection is karma. Impersonal, totally impersonal. But as long as we think this is me, we're making karma. And as long as we think it's me, the karma is being made, then me is being born. Karma brings about the rebirth consciousness. If you remember the very first day 
I talked about the depend arising, the worldly depend arising. And it started out with ignorance and comes to the karma formations and the rebirth consciousness. Totally impersonal, but the idea of me is there. Who is picking up? connection is the ego illusion. The ego illusion connects the karma to that which arises again. So the one who's made the karma and the one who reaps the resultants are neither the same nor different. The answer lies in the middle, the Buddha said. They are not the same because you don't come back looking the same, nor do you come back even knowing the same. But in your stream of karma resultant is that um, stream entry. <coughs> that if you have become a stream enterer, that's in within embedded in the karma. So the ego illusion is your connection. When the, when you sever that connection, you don't come back. Not necessarily, not necessarily, but it can happen. It doesn't happen to everybody. Some people do and some don't. And some people become very clairvoyant. Um, actually, it is uh, um, often recommended by teachers that if one has the uh, ability to go into all the jhanas and has already attained at least stream entry, that one can... Um, uh, foster those abilities in oneself. Everybody has them. It's a matter of cultivating it. You know, and not everybody likes to, wants to do that. Yes? Arahant. A Pacheka Buddha and a Buddha, actually. A Pacheka Buddha is a Buddha that doesn't teach. And so it's a, it's a Buddha that we never, never hear about because it doesn't teach. And it's, a, well, every Buddha is an Arahant. The difference is Pacheka Buddha or Buddha. Hmm. <laughs> Compassion. <laughs> Only one reason for teaching. Any one, one valid reason. There are many others, but it's the only valid one. <laughs> There's no other valid reason for teaching. <laughs> That's why the Buddha taught. He didn't want to. When he sat under the Bodhi tree, he didn't want to teach. He said that uh, his doctrine uh, of teaching will be so difficult for people to understand that they will um, uh, not, uh, he can't uh, teach them so that will vex him. And uh, then uh, the uh, the highest Brahma came to visit and asked him, begged him to teach for the benefit of gods and men. And then he reconsidered the Buddha and used his clairvoyance to look around 
And he said that there were some people with little dust in their eyes, in their mental eyes. And uh, so he decided to teach. And uh, if he hadn't, we wouldn't have that all that to go by. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, certainly. No, they don't have the the, the ability. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is able to teach. So, but they do contribute very greatly. Yes. Maybe they should, but they don't. There's nothing I can do about it. They don't. I have nothing else I can tell you. Eagerness. Hmm. I have no idea why somebody else says something. I can only tell you what the Buddha said. That's all I know. I have no idea why somebody else says something else. The Buddha said some vega has to arise, which is urgency. I have no idea why they say that. And I mean, they may be meaning something which has a, uh, you know, a meaning, but it doesn't appear from those words. There must be a meaning behind it, but I'm not sure what it is. I can't. Mm. Well, maybe they don't mean like that. Maybe they mean a little different. I, I can't say. I really don't know. Yeah. We have superhuman potential. We also have superhuman potential. The Buddha was also a human being. you got to get at it. In order to manifest it, you've got to get at it. Oh, understanding that there ain't no Arimah. What? Understanding? To understand that no one owns it. I don't own it. It's a universal love that I can express. Yes, well, love one doesn't really have that idea of owning. I don't think one has that idea about love because love is always giving. I don't think that that idea enters into love. Hardly. Hardly.
to to practice the detaching from the animal. It, what is what meaning quality? Well, calm and insight. <laughs> there is nothing else. Calm is to get the mind to stay put, to be one-pointed, so that it can have the meditative absorptions eventually, where it sees already that me isn't there, and inside to watch the arising and ceasing, and eventually the dissolution, that the ceasing becomes the more prominent factor, and as everything falls apart, where is me? And also, everything I said last night, checking out the khandas, the five aggregates, um, checking out the four um, uh, great elements, uh, checking out the the uh, 32 parts of the body. These are all these are all the necessary uh, meditative uh, possibilities. I think I mentioned those uh, last night, didn't I? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If the question came because from what I read, it, it, I understand that the thoughts becoming Buddha, Mahatya, have not yet manifested. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the question. The other part is, if there's only one Buddha, what about, does that mean there aren't other enlightened human beings? No, it I doesn't know, mean I that. I don't understand. A Buddha is something special. Enlightened human beings are called Arahants. Now, the Buddha was also an Arahant, but the Arahant is one who has used the Buddha's teaching and followed the path to the culmination, as I have explained just now, I mean this pathway. But the Buddha, uh, each Buddha, has to find the path for himself. At that time, at that time when the Buddha arises, the Dhamma has disappeared. So each Buddha finds the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path again and gives a new teaching, which always is based on the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. So he has to do the thing himself. Does that answer your question? Same one. Well, when you become enlightened, of course you do. But at the time a Buddha arises, the Dhamma teaching does not exist. So he has to find it for himself. There's nobody telling that there's a Four Noble Truths, Noble Eightfold Path. He finds it himself. And having found it, he finds it exactly the same way again. It realizes. Yeah. And to say something like that, I 